Hello and welcome to Life at Your Own Podcast. I'm your host, Will Venus, and this week's podcast episode is so exciting. I had the privilege of interviewing my friend, Nancy Pearsall. We chatted about autism, as we both have that in common, and holistic medicine. She also has some vital information about Lyme disease and the connection with autistic burnout. She debunks everything so that even I could understand it. I know you're going to absolutely love this episode, so without further ado, here's the interview. Hello and welcome to Life at Your Own Will podcast. I'm your host, Will Venus, and today is such a special day because I have a guest with me. She is an autism advocate, she is a very funny lady, and she has really cool hair. Welcome, Nancy Pearsall. Thank you so much, Will. It is a delight um, to be here on your show. I am honoured and it's a joy to speak to you. Honestly, the honour is all mine. Thank you so much for being a guest on the pod. I'm, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mentioned about your hair. Uh, if anyone knew listening, I'm a lace wig maker and hair is my thing. And it's also one of my autistic special interests, which is something that Nancy and I have in common. The autism, not wigs. That is. <laughs> <laughs> you are very kind. Thank you so much. It, it, my hair definitely has a, a mind of its own and it's not nearly as cool as your wigs, but I will accept the compliment. <laughs> no, is that a natural curl pattern? It is. It's um, it is so nice. Honestly, see what wigmakers would give to have that naturally. Rather than thank you so hair. much. <laughs> okay, so as I mentioned before, um, or actually, I didn't. We met. Did we meet on Instagram? We did. How did we meet on Instagram? I did. I find you, or did you find me? I'm honestly not sure, but I'm. Uh, it was probably through, like, an autism hashtag. Ah, yeah, that's probably it. So you on Instagram are the bane of gold. Um. What made you decide to be a person that shares content? Sure. Um, so, and I guess I should give a little backstory. Um, my original um, handle on Instagram was called Enigma Creative. So originally I, I kind of ran under that name and I, I used that name for well, probably about two and a half years or so. Um, and I began posting a lot of autism content uh, because I had just received my diagnosis in uh, January of 2020. Um, And under that name of Enigma Creative, I was, that was a period of my life where I was extremely angry. And I was also posting a lot of um, stuff about relational trauma. And so Mm -hmm. after a few years of doing that and kind of (laughs) spitting vile out into the abyss, it's, it's sort of how it felt sometimes, um, I did a lot of you know inner work, and I decided to try to. I wanted to rebrand my account in the hopes of focusing more on things that were healing and things that bring me joy. So mm-hmm. um, I chose the vein of gold because it. I, I got it from the concept of uh, kintsugi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is a a Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with a powdered precious metal such as gold. And so oh, that's philosophy- incredible. Thank you. Well, I mean, I wish I could, I wish I could really take credit for the philosophy, but <laughs> the, the thought behind it is um, rather than trying to, you know, discarding things that are broken or, or being ashamed of their you know damage and trying to disguise it, um, mm-hmm. celebrate that history as something precious. Yeah, absolutely. Because no matter what anyone says I always believe that we're all perfectly imperfect. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I just love the thought of mending some, well, well, essentially mending something precious with something precious. I agree. And I think that, um, you know, there 
there's uh, there's so many wounded hearts and souls yes. in our community, and um, you know, it these days I don't post as much autism advocacy con- advocacy content, perhaps as I once did, and and I have different reasons for that. Um, but I, you know, I do tend to post kind of a mix of things. Uh, I really enjoy making reels with video footage. I, I'm also... Um, yes, I always enjoy those from you. Thank you. Um, but like I, Whatever I, you post it, I mean, it's, it's either I'm either going to learn something, I'm either going to laugh, or I'm just going to admire. I appreciate that. You're very kind. Um, it's it, all very true, though. Thank you. It's I'm I'm so ADHD. Honestly, if I I have tried to maintain a focus and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm waiting on a an ADHD test as well, and I've no idea when it's when it's going to happen. I'm told you can wait up to five years, which is great. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? No, I'm not. Uh, that it, the NHS waiting times are ridiculous in the UK, and it's a bit like a postcode lottery, depending on where you are. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Yeah, yeah, but. The world, it's definitely not designed for neurodiverse people, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same across the pond. <laughs> Is it really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then you, you'll get some people saying, well, you've lived until this point. You can wait, wait a bit longer. Mm, uh, okay. Yeah. And uh... <laughs> you, you, you certainly come up against the negativity, put it that way. And the, the lack of education. Absolutely, yeah. Because people say, "Well, everyone's a bit ADHD. Everyone's a bit autistic." Gosh. No, no. <laughs> you either are or you aren't. Exactly. I think it was. Um, I think. I think uh, they go by a lyric now. But I heard. Um, you know, it used to be neurodivergent rebel say that. You know, it, saying that somebody is a little bit autistic is like saying they're a little bit pregnant. <laughs> Oh, it's I've like, never thought of it that way. No. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, either you are or you're you're not. <laughs> yeah, very true. And so, <clears throat> Nancy, you wanted to talk about a thing called Lyme disease. Yes, yes, I do. Thank you. Um, um I don't, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about it other than it involves ticks and it can make you very ill. But if you would like to elaborate, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, so... Yes, this is going to be a little bit of an info dump, but I feel it is very important to get this information out uh, however I can. Yeah, Yeah, um, to the autism community especially, because as you're very much aware, a lot of autists are, you know, we hear about autistic burnout online a lot. Yes, and people talk about, oh, I'm so tired, oh, I just don't feel well. And, you know, they'll talk about sometimes the aches and pains and the brain fog and things that go along with it. And so mm-hmm. um, bear with me as I sort of just go off on a little bit of a spiel here for a few minutes. But um, basically, so I'm full disclosure, like, I don't care who knows my age. I'm um, 47, going to be 48 in a couple of months. And no, are you really? Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> I, but I hadn't. Even in in the forties, <laughs> oh, I'll buy you a cup of tea if I ever make it to Edinburgh. <laughs> I'll hold you to that, and I'll take. You to, I'll actually take you to the best tea room in town. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so I I had been um, really desperately ill since my uh, mid mid twenties, and I even before that I had a variety of health symptoms that were very mysterious, but always just you know. Um, 
all the tests that I had, they sort of, you know, said that nothing was wrong with me. So starting about in my 20s, I, um, I started going to doctors on a regular basis, having all sorts of tests run. Um, lots of rheumat you know, rheumatology tests, because a lot of rheumatological uh, diseases are in my family. Lots of just everything you can think of. I was diagnosed with having fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome in my mid twenties, um, okay. around the time that, um, I had a really big, uh, bad, uh, bout of mononucleosis with a Epstein-Barr virus. And okay. it just kind of knocked the wind out of me. Um, uh, so, you know, I got the fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue diagnosis, but those are just sort of umbrella terms that say, we recognize that you don't feel well, but we don't really know the cause. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I literally, I continued to have probably dozens and dozens of tests throughout the years. I went to innumerable specialists and everybody around me, doctors and employers, <laughs> co-workers, and other people that were close to me couldn't see any reason why I should be feeling well. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that everybody routinely gaslit me, but there was sort of this underlying current of you're just, you know, being dramatic. You need to... Oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need to just, you know, power through. And so um, my mental health had never been very great to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I had had uh, clinical depression and severe anxiety since I was at least eight years old. I mean, I was the first time eight I was, years was old. yeah, the first time I was thought about taking my life, I was eight years old. Um, and so I began to drink uh, when I was actually about 18. Uh, and I had periods of sobriety on and off throughout my life. But, you know, around about my 30s, when I was still going to all these doctors trying to figure out what was wrong, and everybody was dismissing me, I began, you know, well, I was, I was born an alcoholic, alcoholism has a biological chemical basis behind it, in addition to behavioral and spiritual reasons. I went to AA for many years. Anyway, that's a tangent. But um, my alcoholism became much worse because my depression became much worse and mm -hmm. because nobody was believing me. And I wasn't getting any answers and I wasn't feeling better. And unfortunately, when I was putting the alcohol into my body, which is sugar, my symptoms were becoming much worse. And I didn't understand how these things were connected. So fast forward to about January of 2020. And then uh, you've done. Then you start to do all your own research, information it, gathering. Exactly. So that that's sounds when, familiar too. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I love these patterns that we spot. Uh, that's when I found out that I'm autistic, and I, you know, began to connect to um, other neurodivergent folks on Instagram, and just, oh my gosh, just drinking the information from a hose from so many knowledgeable yep. people who've yep. come before me and just being so grateful and humbled, really, really grateful. And I continued to, you know, read about autism and, and, and I, and I got introduced to this concept of autistic burnout and I thought, well, hello, wait a minute, maybe this is what's wrong with me. And mm -hmm. it's just been autistic burnout all along. And I was working with, you know, a couple of people who claimed, you know, kind of market themselves as burnout specialists and um, some of their suggestions. Is that such a thing, burnout specialists? There there are some who, uh, you know, do what they can to try to alleviate that 
aspect of suffering in the community. I did, and, I, honestly, I didn't know it was a, a thing. Uh, Yes, there are a, a couple of folks out there and they had some, you know, wonderful suggestions, but unfortunately they weren't working for me. And I was getting sort of even more depressed than ever. And incidentally, at, at this point, right now, as I'm speaking to you, I am, oh, let me see. The last time I, I had a drink was in 2017. So mm -hmm. within the past year or so, um, my medical saga <laughs> took me uh, outside of conventional Western medicine here in the U.S. So okay. here in the U.S., you've got, you know, um, we don't have the national health care system. Obviously, we've got, you know, you basically have to have, you have to either have an employer that provides and you sort of like help pay for a health insurance plan to, to help alleviate your medical burden costs. Okay. Um, you haven't you buy insurance, or if you don't work, you have to buy the insurance yourself, and you pay a monthly fee to keep the plan going. It's called an right. insurance premium. Okay. So, um, so I noticed that you know I had been I had always operated within that system of working with insurance companies, but then when I left that system and I began working with holistic doctors who did not accept insurance. It was a whole different ball game and really an eye opener for me. And um, the reason that I didn't do it sooner was because, frankly, I, I couldn't afford to do it sooner. Um, I'm fortunate that my situation is a little bit different now. Mm -hmm. um, not that I'm rolling in money because I'm not, but um, I discovered that these holistic doctors who are not confined, you know, and bound by these insurance rules, they run different tests um, and they can really get to the bottom of a person's especially people who are chronically ill they run you know they'll like check your your gut biome heavy metal burden toxic mold burden all sorts of things they'll they'll um even genetic tests looking for if you whether or not you're able to methylate uh certain things properly so okay yeah i started that's, i mean that sounds i mean you mentioned all those things that's i mean all of those words they are just singing to me and also it sounds a lot more exhaustive than we get here on the NHS. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, so, I, honestly, I wish the NHS at times were a bit more holistic rather than, because usually when I go into an appointment, I'll have this information that I, you know, that I'll have about myself. I'll say, I think it could be this. And then what they'll do is say, well, if it doesn't, if it's not quite on the NHS website or our books, you've not got it. Oh God, that's so frustrating. Yeah. I'm so and so sorry. then you have to go in and argue with a doctor to prove that you've got this. Uh -huh. And then, as you know, being autistic, sometimes we're not the, the best at communicating. It. And then, then we just forget about it. It doesn't happen. I know exactly what you mean. And I mean, that was always my experience, too, working with um, conventional doctors and insurance over here. It took... I, I, mean, like, I, I, I mean, I honestly wish that there was more infrastructure here to have private medical care because there's only maybe... I mean, there's not a lot of private care here. It's either expensive or you you go NHS and that's it. There's not really a lot of variety when it comes to, to medical care. Mm. Sorry, I'm sorry for interrupting you. No, there. no, 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 no. I, I want you, I, I love hearing, I want to know what it's like where you are and in other places um, because there is really such a need. Um, well, I mean, for instance, the most, I mean, I've said this word to you, the most quote-unquote exotic thing that we could get in the NHS is to go to endocrine uh, to talk about hormones and that's it really oh my gosh yeah that's so unless I mean it's, it's either got to be the quote-unquote serious things you know like cancer uh whatever else 
you know, serious illnesses that are out there or, or you just get on with it. That's, yeah, it's terrible. That's and absolutely I didn't, terrible. And when I, when I was going through the, the autistic assessment thing, I was told that the NHS in the whole of Edinburgh doesn't have anyone to do any, with anything that's autism. Anyone. <laughs> so because of that, they, they, they rely on a charity to do their assessments or that's it. Oh my gosh. Honestly, I, I, was, I, was, I was as shocked as you are. That is so unacceptable. Completely acceptable. I am. I am so sorry. I can't even imagine. Like, oh my gosh, no. I mean, I mean, I, I feel. I mean, I've I've got to feel so grateful, and you know, everything happens for a reason. That I got that assessment because it's really benefited me, and that oh, this my life now makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it changes everything. Everything. Yeah. Was it similar for you? How can I ask how your your autistic assessment came about? Sure. Um. <laughs> So, um, I, let's see, it was, I think, somewhere around 2016. Mm, yes, <laughs> 2016. Gosh, my years, I, I, I'm bad. Um, basically, shortly after I got married, um, I received, uh, and I just remember that because, you know, it was like after, it was that summer, I received an email from an ex of mine who, um, you know, we had, each married other people. And mm -hmm. um, so she had, uh, her, her wife at the time was investigating autism for herself. And my ex uh, saw a video, I guess, that her wife at the time had been watching about how autism can present in those assigned female at birth. And it was okay. Tony Atwood uh, giving a lecture on autism in girls, quote unquote. And so my ex evidently saw me in the content and very kindly um, emailed me the link and just said, I think you need to watch this. <laughs> and I started never, never before had autism come up on my radar and I started watching the video and I almost fell out of my chair. Yeah. And I immediately just was like, what? Autism? Autism? <laughs> me? And yeah, so I, um, I had one assessment that was a complete dumpster fire. I was uh, I was told that um, because I was able to put on makeup, dress myself, walk upstairs, hold a job, and get married, I could not possibly be autistic. What? Um, oh yes, it was really, really, it was bad. Um, I was one of the oh. questions was, do you intentionally pass gas in front of other people? <laughs> I was like <laughs> thinking, what? What does that have to do with anything? Um, and uh, so then I I saw. Okay. Yeah, it was just like the most horrific, I don't know, like 1940s <laughs> criteria. Um, so Sorry, I, just, I know I shouldn't laugh. But oh, it, no, it was, please laugh, because we have to laugh sometimes to keep from crying. Um, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll apply that. <laughs> if you don't so laugh, like, you cry. Exactly. Um, so I got a, a different assessment from somebody who really knew what they were doing. And they, it took a month, you know, she interviewed me and my husband and my parents and, um, you know, she said that the one challenge that uh, she had in kind of actually giving me the diagnosis was that my parents hadn't said a lot of things that really resonated to her as being stereotypically autistic things for toddlers to do. However, my father, <laughs> even though he has not been diagnosed, in my personal opinion, is very autistic. And so a lot of the things that I did as a kid 
would of course appear normal to parents who are also neurodivergent. Okay. So anyway, she did, uh, you know, tell me that I'm very much autistic. And so um, that's how that happened. <laughs> so one test that, um, you know, I'm working with these holistic doctors and I realized that I'd never been tested for Lyme disease. And I honestly, I didn't know much about it. It was only on my mind because uh, somebody that I knew through the grapevine, their child had been treated for it. And I just thought, well, why not? What do I have to lose? I've been testing for everything else. And yeah. so I learned that there is no single perfect test used to detect Lyme because Lyme. So first of all, what is Lyme? Lyme is a bacterial infection carried by ticks, which are typically ticks associated with deer. And so with if deer. you, okay. yeah, if you like typically Lyme bearing ticks are typically found in grassy areas in the woods, anywhere where there is like tall, beautiful grass that you want to go run and frolic in. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also the, so the, what happens is that the ticks, you know, they, um, they drink the blood of, of animal, of wild animals and they acquire these different pathogens, these bacteria. And the main one that is Lyme, associated with Lyme, is called Babesia. And, Babesia. Then, okay. mm -hmm. and then there are what they call co-infections that also commonly travel uh, in the ticks. And by the way, the, all this stuff can also be transmitted through mosquito bite, okay. um, which, which is wonderful. But um, other common... Uh, co-infections are Bartonella, which is also known as cat scratch fever, and something called anaplasmosis, and some others. And so I, I have, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So there's no one perfect test that can detect Lyme, because Lyme can actually switch off its inflammation markers during testing, or just in general, to be undetectable. So wow. yeah, they're... Um, there's also the matter of antibodies. So if you if you go to a doctor and you say I want to be tested for Lyme, and they are they're going to test for two different types of antibodies. One of them is called IgM, and the other is called IgG. So the thing is, you can't always trust what these testers are saying, and I'll tell you why. Usually, a person has to have positive IgM antibodies to indicate an active infection with something. If their IgM is negative, but their IgG is positive, that usually indicates that some kind of exposure has happened sometime in the distant past. But with Lyme, a person can have a negative IgM and a positive IgG and oh. still have an active current infection. And I asked my doctor why this is, and she said, well, because the body can't produce IgM antibodies forever. So if you've been, for instance, infected for decades, after a while, your body just sort of assumes that the bacteria is like a normal part of your your system now. And so it oh. stops producing IgM. Yeah. So if you're symptomatic and you have positive IgG, a person should pursue treatment. And so it's weird too, because um, some people will have exposures to ticks. They'll get covered in bites. Like my husband, Johnny, was covered in bites as a kid, but he okay. never developed Lyme. And yet I, to the best of my knowledge, have had two exposures, and I'm sick as a dog. Oh. And um, a lot of it 
I think has to do with genetics. It also has to do with how well our bodies are able to naturally detox things like mold and heavy metals and other things that basically, if you think of it, you think of your body as a bucket and your bucket can only hold a capacity of so much water. Mm -hmm. So if you fill it and you keep filling and say the water is like toxins and environmental you know, toxins and, and just the normal stuff that your body produces that everybody's normal body would produce. That's a toxin. Um, some people's buckets accumulate faster than others. Some, some people are able to purge things faster than others. And some people can't. And so I think the, the people that can't detoxify naturally as well on their own or are somehow genetically predisposed to become sick when they get bit, they're going to have symptoms. They're going to have problems later on. And so about two months ago, I was finally diagnosed with chronic Lyme. And so I, yeah, so my fibromyalgia symptoms are actually secondary to having Lyme disease. So I really, had, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. So I have had significant exposure to multiple strains of Babesia, which is the Lyme bacteria, plus Bartonella and Anaplasmosis, along with, again, the toxic mold, and um, which happened in places that I worked and apartments that I lived in um, here in central Texas, because it's very humid here. Um, and somehow along the way, I wound up with astronomically high levels of lead and mercury, which I have no idea how that happened because I don't. Yeah, even have I, any I, I think I remember that, that that you post about that on Instagram. It's very strange, yeah, because I don't eat a lot of seafood, and and I don't mm-hmm. have any, you know, I don't have any metal fillings in my in my teeth. But see, see when I think about tests like that, it makes me think of shows like CSI. How did this happen? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, that's sort of what my everyday life feels like these days. Um, <laughs> So, so we traced my, uh, so, okay. Initially I, I, when I realized that I had this Lyme exposure, I remember that in my twenties, I developed a large, uh, they call it a a bullseye rash on my body. And I went to the hospital to have it treated and cleaned because I am from the desert originally. And I assumed that I had been bit by some kind of a poisonous spider. So, you know, I immediately sought medical care, but nobody at the hospital mentioned that it could have been tick. Nobody suggested that I get tested for Lyme. Um, And then when I was mentioning all of this to my mother a couple of months ago, she asked me if I remembered when I got really sick when I was about seven. And so she had told me about this whole episode that dragged on for months and she had kept meticulous notes of my symptoms. So now we know... Yes, because they took me to all these doctors. I mean, my body swelled up from head to toe. I couldn't walk. I had blisters everywhere. I I was becoming very sensitive to light. Uh, And, you know, a year later is when basically my my OCD, my anxiety, my suicidality all all started. So now we, we know that basically I've been living with untreated, undiagnosed Lyme disease for 40 years. Um. Yeah, um, this is like, again, I feel like this is so important for people who are autistic, who think that they, you know, might have autistic burnout or people living with fibromyalgia to know because, you know, people, so Lyme, the name Lyme came from uh, a small town in Connecticut where the first cases were reported or were documented back in. Oh, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, I think it was 1975. It was a bunch of kids in this neighborhood who all suddenly started to develop arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. And nobody could figure out why they were, these kids were getting sick. And they were all kids that were playing outside in the grass. <laughs> and um, they were getting bit by ticks that were carrying Lyme. And so the cause of Lyme wasn't discovered until several years later. And now, despite the fact that many people still believe that Lyme is, you know, basically uh, only in the nor- northeastern part of the United States, like Maine and Rhode Island, New York, Lyme has spread to every continent but Antarctica. It is literally everywhere. One thing that I discovered upon my diagnosis was that the whole Lyme thing is very political. It's very... Pardon? Is it really political? Oh yeah, it's very political and it's very complicated and it is... I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist. That's fine. Hey, I like a conspiracy. This is actually a real-life conspiracy. So the thing is, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC in America, they have um, a position that Lyme is very difficult to contract and that it's very easy to treat. All you have to do is take a couple of months or, you know, tops worth of antibiotics, usually doxycycline, and that you'll be cured forever. And that's simply not true for most people. Um, If somebody is lucky enough to be diagnosed within, you know, like somebody like comes in to a doctor's office and they've got the tick in a jar and they test the tick and they test the person and they say, yes, you've been exposed. And they immediately like flood this person's system with antibiotics. Then Which I imagine person... doesn't happen that often. Exactly. It doesn't happen very often because again, doctors aren't testing for it. Most doctors aren't testing for it. Um, And so these people usually are just getting sicker and sicker over time. And so around 500,000 new cases are reported. These are the ones that are just reported in the U.S. every year. Um, Every year? Every year. Every year. I think it's higher than than possibly breast cancer. Um, And according to, I looked it up because I knew you're in the U.K., according to uh, the website www.gov.uk, there are about 1,500 laboratory-confirmed cases of Lyme in England and Wales each year, although it's estimated that there are between three to 4,000 new cases each year. Um, wow. Any place that's grassy and wooded is risky. In the UK, that is especially northern England and the Scottish Highlands. Um, they're said to be the riskiest areas. It is Scottish truly, Highlands. Okay. Scottish Highlands, yeah. Um, it's truly a silent epidemic. And so for those people whose exposure actually leads to symptoms, um, only about 10% of, case, 10% of the cases are caught and treat, treated early enough for antibiotics to truly be effective long term. And oh. part of the reason for this is because um, Babesia, again, which is the main Lyme um, bacteria, it's um, it's got a special shape and it's very adaptive and sneaky. It is shaped like a corkscrew and it's called a spirochete, okay. and its shape enables it to burrow deep into the tissues and bone all around the body. Um, and to the bone. To the bone. Um, so it, it it can literally go dormant to escape being killed by antibiotics, and then it reemerges later. 
So, so patience. Yeah, it's very, very clever. It's very nasty little sucker. So that means that most people who develop symptoms will live with a chronic illness that's never entirely cured. And the best that somebody can hope for really is for their symptoms to go into remission. Um, it I mean, when, it, when, and also when you think about that, how sad is that when yeah. someone could be living such a more enriched, energy-filled life? Yes. I mean, if I could tell you, I, I can't even like, if I start to try to think about like how, how it feels some days, like I will, <laughs> the autistic, the autistic person in me will like want to shut down because yeah. it is just like, kind of like your body being crushed by a vice. Like you've run 20 marathons in a row and you've got fevers and you've got rashes and you've got other symptoms. And you know, like I, I can barely get any deep sleep. Um, it has made my anxiety just incomprehensibly bad. Um, but, and it attacks, so it attacks the nervous system and every organ in the body, including the brain and the heart. Um, and it can render patients physically disabled, like unable to walk. You can develop something called ALS where people, they'll wind up in wheelchairs because they haven't been diagnosed and treated. What um, does ALS stand for? Oh gosh. Um, let me, I'm right here by a computer. Let me Google it really quick. Or was it a long one? <laughs> Amidotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and it can lead to death. However, the leading cause of death in Lyme patients is suicide. Um, really? Because of how bad it makes you feel, maybe. How bad it makes you feel and because there ultimately is no real cure. Yeah, I was just going to ask. I mean, say you've 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 not caught it in the early stages. What is the the treatment on like you know in the long term? So there are many different things that people do try. Um, usually, what happens in the very beginning when somebody is diagnosed is that they will go ahead and try antibiotics, and I, that's actually where I am right now because I did have a secondary infection, which apparently I've had for years, and I didn't really realize that I had it. So this is my second month of being on two different types of antibiotics twice a day that are pretty hardcore antibiotics. Um, but we're hoping that, you know, within a month or so I can stop that because long-term antibiotics literally destroy the immune system. Yeah, yeah. So um, people will, uh, there are lots of different herbs out there that people um, use to try to suppress um, the bacteria. Uh, there are, it's very important to identify food triggers because okay. um, Lyme thrives on sugar, alcohol, um, any kind of starchy carbs. Gluten is very important to avoid. Uh, all the nice I, things. <laughs> yes, all the nice things. Uh, dairy is bad. Um, what else? Uh, nightshades cause a lot of people problems. Um, they cause, you know, they trigger inflammation in the body. There are therapies like, um, there's something called a, a rife machine, which I have yet to try. There are, um, there's something called a PEMF mat, which is like pulsed electromagnetic frequency, which I've begun using. There's red light therapy. There are infrared saunas, which I've bought one off of Amazon for about a hundred bucks. It's a little pop-up thing that I use in my bathroom just okay. to help sweat and detox. There are, boy, you, you buy like benetite clay and make a you like mix it up with apple cider vinegar and water and you just smear it like all over your, your lymph nodes. 
um, you do dry brushing to try to move the lymph and then, you know, soak in a hot Epsom bath with Epsom salts and mm-hmm. baking soda. You really just, it's all about trying to detox. I mean, I'm <laughs> getting really personal here. It, Lyme, long-term Lyme really affects the, the GI tract. And so I've gone so yeah. far as to do a round of colonics. <laughs> okay. Um, and I have to say that that has been tremendously helpful, um, but I, I am not out of, out of the woods by any means, and I. Um, am so I mean, st- like the like with the mm-hmm. the long term treatments going forward, is it one of those things where it's got to be trial and error, and it's got to be whatever works for that individual? Exactly, ex- okay. exactly. Especially because no one, or let's say, no two people have the exact same um, infections. Usually, it's kind of like each individual has their own slightly different Lyme quote recipe happening depending okay. on what they've been bit by see so, i mean i mean um ignorantly i always thought that like when you got uh bitten by one of these lime ticks that it only really infected you if it stayed in you that was my misunderstanding that's not ignorant at all i mean literally i i knew nothing about this whatsoever up until two months ago um and you know people can uh, you know, get sick and have symptoms and never see the bullseye rash. Um, you can get sick and never find a tick on you. I've never found a tick on me. That's really um, scary, isn't it? It is scary. It's also scary because um, one doctor that I talked to said about 10% of mosquito bites or mosquitoes, pardon me, do carry these types of vector-borne diseases. Um mm-hmm. And so another thing for people to be aware of is that symptoms can change drastically over time. So if any of this is ringing bells for people listening, I do encourage them to please educate themselves more about early versus late stage Lyme symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I can also recommend... Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. um, Let's see. a, A book that's really great, which is also on Audible, is called Why Can't I Get Better? Solving the Mystery of Lyme and Chronic Disease. It's written by this doctor who's kind of a genius. His name is Dr. Richard Horowitz. That's okay. H-R-O-O, sorry, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. Um, a great website is LymeDisease.org. And then um, there are actually... Uh, a few documentaries, which I highly recommend, and they'll do a better job of explaining sort of the um, the controversy and the conspiracy behind the whole Lyme thing. Than, than sure. I... And anyone listening, we can, well, of course, include everything that we've talked about today in the show notes. So if you want to check any check out any resources. Wonderful, wonderful. That would be amazing. Um, so the, the first documentary is called Under Our Skin, and okay. it has a part one and a part two on YouTube, and the they're they're there for free. Uh, the entire documentaries are there, parts one and two. Um, another one is called The Quiet Epidemic, and it's on Apple TV, Prime Video, and Vimeo on demand. And then the last one that I'm aware of is called It Just Came Out. It's called I'm Not Crazy, I'm Sick. And it's on Apple TV, Google Play, and Prime Video. And that's I'm my de- spiel online. I'm definitely going to be checking some of these out because, like I said, I'm unfortunately a bit ignorant when it comes to Lyme disease. So I really would like to learn about it. I encourage you to. I encourage, I mean, really everybody to. Um, because even if it it might not apply to you at some point, it, it 
you might, you know, meet somebody or have somebody in your life that you care about that. Do you know is, what? I was mm-hmm. just about to say that there is someone that's in my life that is ringing all kinds of bells from what you've just described. Oh boy. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm always, I'm happy to be a resource for people. Um, if they want to find me on Instagram, you know, I'm. Yes, absolutely. I, and uh, your Instagram, it'll be in the show notes too. Everything will be. And I'm certainly not an expert, but you know, I am, I am somebody with lived experience. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I always think that people who live with things are more expert than the quote unquote experts. This is often true, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although there is, I mean, I personally know some people that will take everything a quote-unquote expert says to heart and there will be yeah. no budging at all. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> will you please just listen to people who actually experience X, Y, and Z and, you know, maybe you could you could change your mind. Right. Like maybe you might actually get a... a a different, a fresh take. <laughs> yes, yeah, a, a new perspective from someone who's actually living with something, yeah. You got it. Hi guys, so that was part one of my interview with Nancy Pearsall. Don't forget to follow the pod for part two, which will be released as a bonus next week. We really hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, and please do check out the show notes for more resources on Lyme disease, and also do check in with your medical practitioners for all things pertaining to your medical needs we will see you next week at some point with a bonus episode part two thank you for listening do leave a review and tell all your friends about this fantastic podcast bye